Chapter 22 of Secret History Revealed by Lady Peggy O'Malley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Secret History Revealed by Lady Peggy O'Malley by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter 22 my blood so flew to my head that for a second or two I was giddy, and saw nothing through the rain of sparks which hung like a veil before my eyes. But in an instant I came to myself, wrenched back to a clear vision of things by sheer necessity to act. Somebody would have to do something, if the situation were not to ruin the princess's whole evening. And after all he had suffered, whatever happened, Eagle March must be saved from the pain of public humiliation. Yet who was to do anything? Who was to save him? Only a few persons knew that to arrange a meeting between Sidney Van Dyke, Diana, Millie, and Captain Eagleston March was about as tactful as to invite the King of Belgium to dine with the German Kaiser. Only a few persons knew, and those most concerned, were the very ones who would do least to shield Eagle's feelings. The princess began gaily to explain that here was her great surprise, at last, the two heroes of whose classic escape the whole world had heard. The elusive Mars, as he had been called, was in reality Captain March, who had refused to make use any longer of his nom de guerre. But in the midst of explanations, as she would gently have led Eagle toward Diana, oh horror, she had evidently planned to send these two into dinner together. Suddenly she realized that some freezing spell had turned her principal guests to figures of ice. Eagle, struck with deadly pallor under the brown mask sun and wind had given him, stiffened involuntarily and held back. Sidney had gone crimson, and then yellow-white. Diana, with a shocked face drained of color, looked ready to faint, while Milly, in all her new pride of importance, flung up her head and stared insultingly. This transformation had taken place with the announcement of the officers' names, and it took Prince and Princess Sanzanov no longer than is needed in the counting one, two, three to notice it. Living all their lives in an atmosphere of diplomacy as they did, even their great tact and presence of mind, failed for a few dismal seconds to cope with the emergency, it being so utterly unforeseen, and such a blow to them that their cherished surprise should be not only a dead failure, but a brutal catastrophe. They must have realized in a flash that these people whom they had brought together were bitter enemies. They must, in a rush of emotion, have blamed themselves and each other for not finding out in time what perhaps they might have suspected or known without telling, had they not been foreigners or comparative strangers in London society. As a matter of fact, they could not have known unless they had catechized Americans, which it would never have occurred to them to do. But no doubt the thought came to their minds, and they must have cursed their inspiration for that pleasant surprise. I saw Princess Zazanov's eyes appeal in despair to her husband, but the situation was too complicated even for him to solve in a second, for the worst was yet to come. 
thinking to compliment Di and honor the man who had brought their nephew out of captivity. They had arranged that Captain March should take Lady Diana Van Dyke into dinner. The expression on her face and the stiffening of his muscles had shown this plan to be impossible. To say nothing of Major Van Dyke's mad bull glare, now at an instant's warning there would have to be a general post and changing of partners, and the most desperate difficulty of all must have lain in the princess's complete ignorance of the facts. She stood there among the company she had invited to meet each other, as if blindfolded, not knowing which ones or how many were affected by the vendetta. I saw and divined this between two heartbeats, for I was one of those who knew the undercurrents hidden from strangers, and in such moments one thinks quickly. Of all the guests I was the least important and the youngest, except the Sanzanov boy, yet I felt that I was the only person present who could or would act in time. I made up my mind to risk seeming rude or shockingly bold. There was just one thing I could think of to do, and I did it. Into the midst of that brief, freezing pause, I plunged, almost running forward. I held out both hands to Eagle. Oh, dear princess, I gasped. We are the best and oldest friends, Captain March and I. We've known each other since since I was a child, and we met in Belgium when he was Monsieur Mars. Eagle grasped my hand so tightly that I should have had to cry out if I had worn rings, and Princess Sanzanoff gave me such a look of touching gratitude that I was sure I had been lucky enough to do the right thing. Oh, I am so glad, she breathed. Then if you are great friends, you will go into dinner together, and I must let you do so. She had the air of having just been saved from drowning, and I was the straw which had thrust itself out in the nick of time for her to catch. Having accomplished my mission as a straw, I gave my attention wholly to Eagle. But though I tried not to notice, I was dimly conscious, all the same, of what was going on around me. I saw Major Skobolev, the young Russian officer whose escape Eagle had aided, Prince Sanzanov's nephew, talking to Milly, and noticed that Stefan Stefanovich had been given to die as a substitute for Captain March. Somehow or other, the princess juggled her guests about so that three minutes after the crash, when dinner was announced, all could be set to partners without confusion. There was a French duchess, a refugee from Paris, present, whom the prince had to take in, and the princess had the duke. The arrangement couldn't be upset, and the only quite ridiculous effect of the whirlwind was to give young Prince Paul to a widow old enough to be his grandmother. I had rushed in to talk with Eagle before we stopped shaking hands, but he had not been able to answer the call of conventionality so soon, and it was not till after we were seated at table that he could control himself to speak. On his other side was Prince Paul's elderly dinner companion. On my other side was the new military attaché who had taken the Count's place in the embassy, a man past the soldiering age, and as he had Madame Pavlova to talk to, for him I did not exist. 
Eagle and I could speak to each other, as if we were alone together in a forest haunted with far-off voices. What a fool I was to come here, he said. I ought to have known. Don't be sorry, I whispered. Think how glad I am to see you. And there's no reason, no reason in the world, why you should wish to keep out of their way. You have nothing to be ashamed of, but very proud. I am glad to see you again, he answered. Don't imagine I'm not. But I meant to see you anyhow. I've known for weeks where you were. I made that kind old parson who piloted you home promise to wire to an address I gave when you got back safely to England. And afterward he wrote to tell me what fine work you were doing. This is the first time I've been out anywhere except for an invalid crawler, too. It's only three days since we left the nursing home in Fitzroy Square, where Prince and Princess Sanzanoff visited us several times. Skobolev is their nephew, you know. They asked us both to stay with them, and Skobolev is being moved there by his servant tonight. But I made an excuse not to come. Said it would hurt the feelings of an old friend who had offered to lend me his chambers in Whitehall Court to finish getting well in. The Sansonoffs wouldn't take a refusal for dinner this evening, though. It made no difference my telling them who I really am, March instead of Mars. I thought they were sure to know something of my story. They said when I tried to call off that it was going to be a small dinner, just a few friends who would like to meet Skobolev and me. So I let myself be persuaded. This is the result. As we spoke together, the conversation around us murmured vaguely in my ears. I heard it without listening, as one can hear an undertone of murmuring sea beneath all other sounds. People were talking of the one inevitable subject, the war, with variations. The new patriotism, which has made the Tory lion and the liberal lamb lie down together in peace, side by side, paying each other compliments. The good girl tactics of the suffragettes, the surprising slump in murders and every sort of crime, possible raids of zeppelins, and the amusingly persistent legend of Russians in France. The same things which were being discussed at that very moment, no doubt, in every household, high and low, from one end of Great Britain to the other, but always new and ever interesting yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I glanced at Di and Major Van Dyke and Millie to see how they were bearing themselves, and I was not pleased with what I saw. The princess had distributed her guests at three small tables, and of course had separated Di and Sidney. I had to crane my neck round a floral monoplane, which was our centerpiece, to catch sight of them at their separate tables, and even so, I had but a glimpse now and then of a profile. But the expression of those profiles and the earnest confidential way in which they turned toward their neighbors convinced me that they were not talking war talk. Millie faced me where I sat, and though the tables were lit by amber-shaded wax candles which gave an ivory effect to the women's complexions, the primrose light could not subdue Millie's color. As a rule, she was rather pale, but tonight cheeks and ears were flushed deep rose red. She looked excited and childishly angry, her greenish-gray eyes dilated and her lips pouting. 
Had she not been conscious of all her new honors as a married woman and a countess, I don't think she would have dared display her feelings at a dinner party of so much importance. Once or twice she stared with narrowed gaze across the room at Eagle March, then turned to one of her two companions in such a way as almost to advertise the fact that she was speaking of him. She would make little impression, I thought, on Major Skobolev if she tried to prejudice him against Eagle. But it might be different with the man on her other side, who knew nothing of Captain March, save what she had to tell, or even Skobolev, though surely he would not believe evil of his comrade. Could not help remembering. I could imagine Milly whispering, what an awful faux pas for the princess to have brought Major Van Dyke and Captain March together in her house, where they can't get away from one another for hours without being rude to her and the prince. Why, the man was such an enemy of Major Van Dyke's that he actually betrayed his country in the hope of ruining his superior officer. It's a long story, but I can tell it to you if you like. Captain March had to leave the United States Army in the most dreadful disgrace. She looked so like a spiteful green-eyed cat that I seemed to hear the words hissed out, and as the man whose ear approached her lips was one of the famous gossips of London, I could imagine, too, how the story would spread and grow. Millie would certainly tell Prince and Princess Sanzenau also before she went home what a dreadful thing they had done in asking that notorious Captain March to be their guest and especially to meet Major and Lady Diana Van Dyke. Sidney, too, if he could pile anything more on the injuries of the past, would be sure to do his best. As I thought these thoughts, my cheeks began to burn even more hotly than Millie's. I had been questioning Eagle about his adventures, and he had been answering in the laconic way most brave men have when teased to talk of themselves. But for a minute keen though I was, I lost the thread of narrative I had begun eagerly drawing out. This was when I met Millie's eyes and flung a challenge from mine to hers. Dare to hurt him with your lying tongue, and somehow, surely as you live, I'll make you repent. Don't dream that my affection for Tony can stand between you and me, was the warning I sent. Silently, we defied each other in the savage and primitive way which we female human things have merely modernized, not modified, since the days of Lilith up to the days of suffragettes. I was asking myself what punishment I could devise and inflict if necessary to fit Millie's crime and how I, so small and powerless, could dig myself into a defensive trench between Eagle and Sidney Van Dyke when I realized that Eagle's eyes were studying my flushed face. They were sad eyes, yet there was a faint glint of laughter in them. You little fighter, he said. You never throw down the cudgels you've taken up in my defense. No, and never will, I answered, defiance in my voice, even for him, because my blood had been set on fire and the flame would not die down. You're very young, he said with a faint sigh. So young that you haven't learned not to hurl yourself against stone walls. Learn the lesson from me, child. Public opinion is a stone wall, 
the thickest and highest in the world. The tiny bubble of my reputation was wafted against it by an evil wind and burst forever. If I was fool enough once to hope that I could mend it, I know now that I was mistaken. Broken bubbles are like Humpty Dumpty. They can't be put together again, and I don't mean to break my head in the place where the bubbles burst, or let you break yours. We shan't break our heads, said I. We'll break other people's wicked heads that deserve to be broken, and they're aching hard already with sheer rage because you've made a beautiful new bubble for yourself, ever so much bigger and brighter than the old one they tried to burst. Only tried, because they may find that it didn't smash when it seemed to. Then, if the old bubble is saved, they'll be two, solid as crystal and brilliant as rainbows, boomerang bubbles, that will come blowing back to break the brutes who wanted to burst them. Captain March laughed out loud, and I saw Sidney turn involuntarily with a slight nervous start, as if he fancied that the laugh must be directed against him. Irish Peggy, you're inimitable, said Eagle. Look out for your metaphors, or you'll be turning my bubble into a bull. Hang metaphors, I retorted. I wish I could turn the bubble into a bull, not an Irish, but a wild one, and set it at two or three people. Perhaps I shall yet. And what has made you suddenly change your mind, Eagle? At Liège in hospital, you told me how you hated Sidney Van Dyke and felt as if you could choke his life out. I haven't changed my mind, he said. I hate Van Dyke now as I hated him then, more if possible. That's not Christian, but I can't help it, or else I don't try to help it. I'm not sure which. If by killing Van Dyke I could get back what he took from me, I should do my best to kill him. But I'm just cool enough, where he is concerned, to realize that I can't help myself by hurting him. Rather, the contrary. That's where we come to the stone wall. So I'm not going to smash what he has left of my head on the stones he piled up against me. To do that would be giving the enemy great satisfaction, wouldn't it? Perhaps, I had to agree with a sigh. But if the circumstances ever change in my favor, Eagle went on, his pleasant face hardening into grimaces, and I can get revenge without putting myself in the wrong, God help Van Dyke. I hope he won't help him when the time comes, I exclaimed, and I believe it will come. Something often tells me so. Tells me that I, that you what? Eagle prompted me as I broke off. That I shall have some hand in the, the retribution, whatever it may be. It's what I always pray for. Eagle gazed straight at me with eyes which had changed sadly since the day they first met mine in the Water Street shop. I had thought them full of romance and dreams then. Their look was harder and older now, the look of a man who has been down very near to the gates of hell, and by desperate fighting has battled his way up to the heights again, but not so high as to forget the red glare that singed his eyeballs. 
My heart ached because it seemed impossible that the peace of dreams and romance could ever come back. I was glad, glad that Eagle's heart hadn't softened toward Sidney Van Dyke, who was as bitterly his enemy tonight as ever. But I was sorrowful because the beautiful youth of a man's soul had been scorched in the furnace fire. I can't bear to think your friendship for me should harden or embitter you, Peggy, Eagle said. Nothing is worth that. I oughtn't to talk to you as I've been talking now. I shan't again. Forgive me and forget. Help me to forget. Forgetfulness is the best thing that can happen to me now. I realize that in my sensible moments. But it's hard to be sensible always. How I wished I could help him even in so small and humble a fashion. At least I could try to draw his thoughts away from the moment, from the unhealed wound violently torn open. It was a temptation to dwell on it, to look at it, and feed my anger. But on his wistful hint, I threw the temptation off. Instead of returning to our interrupted talk of his adventures, as I wished to do, I answered Eagle's questions about life at the Haven and told him pathetic or funny stories of our refugees. I'm getting to be quite a weird combination of Red Cross nurse, nursery governess, and nursemaid, I said. I really ought to design some special sort of costume suited to my metier but I have never had time to think one out yet. Meanwhile, I wear a badge which keeps up my courage and gives me back my strength whenever I'm tired. You couldn't guess what it is. The flag of the Allies, he ventured? No, the chevron you gave me when you made me your corporal. Do you remember? I saw by his eyes that he was touched. A gleam of the old light flashed into them and brightened his smile. Do I remember? he echoed. Yes, I remember, Peggy, only too well. And I remember the day you flew with me from Hendon and the poor old Golden Eagle. Heaven rest her ashes. The day when, when Lady Diana failed me, and your pluck and presence of mind saved us both from coming to grief. I remember lots of other things you've probably forgotten, and I use the memories for bomb. I had to look down suddenly to hide the tears that stung my eyelids. But I winked them away in an instant and was bracing myself to make him laugh by mimicking the man who had introduced us, Nebuchadnezzar of Warder Street. When great hothouse peaches and amethyst bunches of grapes were brought by the footman, I knew that soon Princess Sanzanau would smile at the French Duchess, and we should all troop away to leave the men. I was sure that Eagle would not join the ladies conventionally in the drawing-room, and I did not want that summons to mean a long goodbye. I asked hastily, therefore, if he could come and see me and the Miss Blatchleys and our Belgians at the Haven when he had grown a little stronger. "'I'm strong enough now,' he said." Write tomorrow to tell me when I may come, and let it be soon. For the minute I'm fit, I shall go back to the front, of course. Of course, I repeated firmly, though my heart felt as if it had been squeezed by a mailed fist. 
I will write the first thing in the morning and send you a formal written invitation from dear Miss Emma and Miss Jane. Do. My address is 21A Whitehall Court. You won't forget, will you? No, I won't forget, I assured him with a secret smile, because I shall beg the princess, as she passes, to forgive me if I go without bidding her farewell in the drawing-room. Being a bit of a crock still gives me a good excuse, and she'll understand and be glad to be rid of me. Even as he spoke, the signal I had been expecting was given by our hostess. We all rose, smiling at our neighbors, and the men stood while we women trailed to the door. I, being last of all the guests, saw the princess pause as Captain March took a step forward, and I knew that he was bidding her farewell. Then I went on, and in the drawing-room found Di waiting to pounce, anger for me in her eyes, a smile for everybody else on her lips. "'How dared you?' she whispered. "'How dared you treat that man as if he were your best friend?' "'Because he is,' I answered bluntly. "'Then you're no friend of ours. Sidney and I.' will never forgive you for this night, trying to put us both in the wrong as you have. It's an honor not to be forgiven for that, I flung back at her. Now I'm going to tell the princess that I have to get back early to my Belgians, and I shall have a taxi called to take me away, because after this I can't even accept from Sidney a lift in his motor. You must accept it, whispered Diana furiously if only to take the things we're giving you out of his house. It is his house, you know. And though you're my sister, I can't expect him to ask you into it again as a visitor, after your deliberate insult to us both tonight. Your being no more than a child has excused some things, but it can't excuse this, for you haven't acted like a child. You've acted like a malicious woman, and I think we've reached the end. I think so, too, I replied. Don't be afraid. I shan't trouble either of you after tonight. I'll not go in your motor, but I'll go to your house and fetch my trunk. As for the things you were giving to the refugees, I'll take them or not, as you like. I'd like to have the rubbish out of the way and see the last of it, said Diana, and looked as if she would gladly see the last of me. I apologized prettily to the princess, explaining how early were the hours of the haven and how much there was to do there. She forgave me with all her gracious charm, pressing my hand as if to show her gratitude for a certain incident which could not be mentioned in words. And five minutes later, I was spinning alone in a taxi toward Park Lane. End of chapter 22. Recording by John Brandon.